The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Before we start John chapter 6, we're just doing a brief study on faith. A series called Faith That Saves. Faith That Saves. Because the reality is, when you look at John chapter 6, John chapter 6 is the explanation of Jesus for why you have a, what he calls a false disciple, a disciple who abandons him. So in John 6, verse 66, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. These are people that had some type of superficial belief in Jesus, people that claimed to, at, at, a cursory level, no Christ, and there at the end of John chapter 6, what happens is that they leave. So, so they weren't true disciples to begin with. And maybe in your own experience, you've seen this. I know when I was growing up, my closest friend in uh, grade school at my church and in the uh, student group uh, was a believer, seemed to be. He was baptized. He was at every event that, where the church doors were open. And then in college, he leaves the faith. What's going on there? He's a false disciple. It was never true faith to begin with. So that's the question. What is true faith? And you see this reality in Matthew chapter 7. If you look at chapter 7, verse 21, look what Jesus says. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, is that there's two types of faith. There's an intellectual faith, a type of faith that says, Lord, Lord, and then there's the type of faith that bears fruit with actions, those who do the will of his Father who is in heaven. There's a dividing wall here. Uh, this is very clear on verse 22. Look at verse 22. He says, on that day, this is the day of judgment. This is the, the day of the Lord, the final day. He says, many, poloi, we looked at that word last week, many will say to me, these are, these are not many of the world. The, these are many of the church. These are, these are many deacons and pastors and church members. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? You hear the surprise there, don't you? It's astonishment. They, 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 they come to the judgment. They're there in their resurrection body. They're expecting to enter the kingdom, and bam, Jesus says, no, he says, look what he says. He says, um, verse 23, he says, I will declare 
declare to them, I never knew you. I never had any actual knowledge of you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You claim to believe in me, but you never did. And this, friends, has been one of the great problems. This isn't just a problem with the modern church. This has always been a problem in the church, is that you have people that darken the doors of the church building who will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said it like this. He says, it's kind of like a field where you have wheat and the devil comes in and and sows tares. And you have the wheat and the tares growing side by side. And when are they sorted out? When does Jesus say they're sorted out? Right now? No, the very end. There's people sitting next to you that you think they're wheat, but you find out in the day of judgment they're tares. So here's my heart as a pastor. I want to make sure that each and every one of you knows that you have true saving faith, that none of you are deceived, that none of you are going to show up on that day and Jesus is going to look at you and say, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's my heart. So last week, what we started looking at is we started answering this question, what is saving faith? How do you know if you actually have saving faith? Because faith is the instrument by which we are saved, right? We're saved by Christ. We're saved by what Jesus has done for us on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection. That's the, uh, the cause of our salvation. But how is that credited to you? It's credited to you by faith, right? So isn't it a great question to ask, what is saving faith? And then to ask yourself, do you have that faith? So last week we just looked at two elements of it. We said saving faith is a supernatural faith. It's a faith unlike any other faith. It's a faith different than the faith that you have in your favorite football team or basketball team. It's a faith that's different than you have in your insurance company. It's a faith that is given to you by God, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it, even the faith, is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. We also said that faith is a childlike faith. Jesus says that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must come as a child. How does a child come to a parent? They come helpless, dependent, and trusting. And Jesus says, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you have to have childlike faith. You can't come like an adult where you say, look at me, look at at all the good things I've done, Uh, look at the great addition I am to your team, Jesus. Jesus says, no, you have to come helpless, dependent, and trusting. So those are the first two descriptions of faith that we've looked at. The third that we're going to look at this morning is that saving faith is a repenting faith. Saving faith is a repenting faith. Repentance is a critical component of conversion. All of our faith, if it's going to be saving, must be a repenting faith, and all of our repentance must be a faithful repentance. Now, that word repentance seems to me to be a word from a bygone age. And I think it's because this element of repentance is unpopular. It's easy, it's, listen, it's easy to preach. All you have to do is agree with these facts of the gospel. This is what Jesus did. He died on the cross for your sins. If you trust in him, believe in him, you'll have eternal life. 
Raise your hand right now if you agree. That's easy. It's really easy, right? Here's what's hard. Jesus says, also repent, which means to turn from your old life and come to him for a new life. You see the difference? But, but that right there, that right there is the crux of saving faith. It's not just mentally agreeing to the facts of the gospel. It's turning with your life, 180 degree turn from your old life to him. We are calling people to follow Christ. We are calling people to think differently about God, about their sin, about their life. And I I want you to hear me very carefully. What our nation needs most is a revival. If we are going to have a revival, it is only going to come with the preaching of repentance. We're not going to have a revival unless we recover this message, unless we begin calling people from their old life into the kingdom. Isn't that what Paul says, that the the gospel transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son? I want you to turn over uh, a few pages uh, to Matthew chapter 5. Now, b- before we look at Matthew chapter 5, we're going we're to start looking at verse 3. I want you to just jot down these verses because I want you to see how prevalent this message of the kingdom is. John the Baptist comes in Matthew 3, 2, preaching a message of repentance. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapter 4, verse 17, when our Lord comes after the temptation, after he comes into Galilee preaching, he says, uh, Matthew 4, 17, Matthew records, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Peter stands up at Pentecost to preach, Acts 2, 38, Peter said to them, repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul, Paul, the messenger of grace. You say, did Paul preach repentance? Yes, he did. Mars Hill, Acts 17.30. Paul says, people everywhere should repent. And that word repent is the Greek word metanoia. Meta, change, transform. Noia is where we get our word mind, mind, knowledge. Change your mind. Change your knowledge about your state before God, about who you are, and what your sin really means. And you see this, I think, most clearly in these Beatitudes. Now, we're not going to look at all of them, but I just want to see how Jesus is really painting a picture of repenting faith. This is what the Christian life is all about. It doesn't just, by the way, begin with repentance. The Christian life is always a life of repentance. Luther said, every day the Christian is to be repenting. So look at verse 3. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's those who have the eyes of faith and realize that they have nothing to offer God other than their sin that enter the kingdom of heaven. Those that realize that they, outside of Christ, are poor in spirit. Jesus says it's these people who inherit the kingdom of God. It's coming to, the, coming to grips with the reality of where you actually stand before God. It's not just saying, yeah, I agree. 
I agree with you. It's coming to the place where you realize the state of your soul before him. That all you deserve is judgment. You know, most people think that they're good people. Most people think that, yeah, compared to the the next Joe Blow, I'm a great person. But to enter the kingdom of God, you have to come to the reality of where you really are, that you're poor in spirit. And notice what Jesus says. He says it's only those people who enter the kingdom of God. Next, look at verse 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn over what? Mourn over a, a, a lost basketball game? No. Mourn over their sin, that they see God in His holiness, and then they see their sin for what it really is. Our world revels in its sin, but repentance means that we begin to mourn over our sin, and not just mourn over the fact of our sin, but mourn over the desire to sin. That you, that you face God and you say, God, I can't believe that I actually desired those things. I can't believe that I still desire those things. I can't believe that my old man, my flesh is like this. That you mourn over where you are. And Jesus says these people will be comforted. It keeps going. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 5. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Repentance is coming to the end of all your pride and all your arrogance and completely humbling yourself before God. Meekness is not weakness, it's humble power. And it's coming before God and saying, God, I am weak and I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Repenting faith is a meek faith. And then Matthew 5, 6, this is one of the, the great tests of whether we truly have a repenting faith. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A repenting faith brings with it a new affection. Do you, you see how this is going all the way down into the heart? It, it, it's not just mental knowledge. It's heart change. It, it's, it's a change in the heart that, that recalibrates what you hunger for and thirst for, that now, before where you used to hunger and thirst to go out and party with the guys, now you're hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God. You want to be holy because your Lord is holy. You want to be righteous, and you hunger and you thirst for those things. You struggle against your sin, but your desire is for holiness. Thomas Chalmers was a famous Anglican preacher, and he, he said it's the expulsive power of a new affection. It, it expulses your old desires for sin and lifts up this new affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a repenting faith. I want to show you one other place. This is so clear. I want you to turn to the right all the way to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. So uh, 
it's towards the end of Paul's letters, so just keep turning to the right. It's right after Colossians. 1 Thessalonians is a remarkable letter because it really details a revival that happens in Thessalonica. And you see this very clearly in chapter 1, that Paul had gone into Thessalonica and a transformation had taken place. And um, if you look at actually verse 7, he says that you in Thessalonica, now Thessalonica is in northern Greece, he says you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Here's what's interesting. Uh, Macedonia, Achaia, these are different regions of Greece. These are way further south. And so what Paul's saying is, is that the, the story of your faith, the testimony of your faith has spread throughout all Greece. I, I, every, every town and village and hamlet I walk in, people are talking about your faith because it's so remarkable. Look at verse 9. For they report, the, these people report, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Now look at this. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That word turn is very important. I want you to circle that word or write it in the margin. It's the Greek word epistrepho. Strepho means to turn, and epi, that little prefix, it's a preposition that's added onto the front, means upon. So it literally means to turn your life from sin upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to turn from the idols upon faith in Christ. It's a 180-degree turn. It's another word for repentance. Paul, uh, it, well, Luke records in, in Acts 9.35, this is when Peter's preaching, and he heals Aeneas. He says, take up your mat and walk. Uh, Luke records in Acts 9.35, he says, and all who live at Lydda and Sharon saw him, saw uh, Aeneas be healed, and he, and he says, they epistrepho, they turned to the Lord. Acts 11.21, Luke records, and a large number that believed turned to the Lord. Do you see how this faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin? It, you can't have one without the other. If, if it's true faith, it's a turning from your old life to the Lord. And there's no greater picture of this than the Apostle Paul himself, is there? Do you, you remember the Apostle Paul? He, he was a persecutor of the church. He calls himself in 1 Timothy 1, the chief of sinners. He was a murderer and somebody who was throwing believers in jail. And of course, on his way to Damascus, Christ confronts him. And we see the change that takes place. And after he goes into Damascus, and after he's healed, where does he go? He goes to the Christians. He goes to, he goes to the churches. And they reluctantly take him in, and he says, I now identify with Christ. It's a new life. It's repentance. So this is the litmus test of your faith. Have you turned 
from your old life of sin? Have you turned from your idols? Have you turned from your former idolatries to Christ? That's the question. When the image pops up on your computer, do you turn? When your hands have an opportunity to do something they're not supposed to do, do you turn? The Christian life is a continual act of repenting faith. And that's the question. If you have repented in the past, you'll keep repenting in the future. You'll keep repenting today. So that's third. Saving faith is a repenting faith. Second, saving saving faith was a childlike faith. And first, saving faith is a supernatural faith. Fourth, saving faith is a surrendering faith. A surrendering faith. Modern Christianity has been plagued but what is, by what is called easy believism. It is the reduction of faith to simply believing in the facts of the gospel. And where I grew up in Texas, this was literally what some people taught theologically. There was a girl in my high school that would often debate me, argue with me and others, and she said, look, all that is necessary for salvation is that you believe in the facts of the gospel here. To require someone to submit their life to Jesus as Lord is a work. So if you're saying that you have to surrender to Christ and His Lordship, you're adding works to salvation. That was the argument. But here's the thing. You don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. This is what we're, we're teaching to the students this morning in the catechism class. Is Christ keen? He is. And if He's keen, He has a kingdom. Therefore, to enter the kingdom, what must we do? Submit to the king. Submit to His lordship. You don't get to have Christ as your priest and reject Him as your king. You can't. Jesus says, nah-uh. Uh-uh. You don't get my atonement without submitting to my lordship. No way, Jose. And that's why in the Gospels, Jesus never went around and said, okay, here's the four spiritual laws. Do you believe them? What was his message? Repent and follow after me. You have to surrender your life to me. Otherwise, you have no part in the kingdom of Christ. Not an ounce. Wow. That's surrendering faith. That's saving faith. My uncle, great uncle, he he went to be with the Lord in 2007. He was a great Cajun preacher. He was in Louisiana. His name was Antoine Valdetero. And he he heard that I had been called to ministry, and and he came over to my great-grandmother's house in Colfax, Louisiana, and and we, we were talking outside. I'll never forget, we were standing underneath the fig tree. It almost sounds prophetic, but we were standing underneath the fig tree. My, my grandma made fig preserves, so she was constantly getting figs from this fig tree, fig tree. But we were standing out there, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, Grant, if you're going to be a preacher of the gospel, you need to remember this. People don't commit themselves to Christ. They must surrender to Christ. You have to surrender to him. 
And he said, I've been preaching this for 50 years, and I want you to preach this. And we should, because it's what Christ preached. He said, you must surrender to me. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And, and you'll, you'll find similar to statements to this throughout the, the Gospels. This is not unique, but I just want you to hear what Jesus said saving faith looks like. Jesus says that there's three elements of a surrendering faith, and you can just see it right here in the text. It's so clear. But Jesus says, Luke 9, 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see the three elements right there. First, you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. That word deny, anisosto, literally means to disown, to repudiate, to renounce. Jesus is saying, you must renounce yourself. You must repudiate yourself. The same language is used by our Lord in Luke 12, 9. Jesus says, he who denies me, he, he who repudiates me before men will be denied before the angels of God. It's this picture of renouncing. And what Jesus is saying, and I want you to see this so clearly, is that Jesus is saying that you have to repudiate your old life. You have to renounce your, your former self. It's not your best life now. <laughs> Where Jesus is just a nice add-on to your already flourishing life. It's, no, your current life ends here. And you deny all of it. You crucify it. So that now you can have Christ's life. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, right? It's a repudiation of your old life. And I'll just say this. Most of the modern church preaches a message that just says, just, just add this on. Add Jesus on to you. It's really simple. You just, you, just, you just say that you believe this, and it's an add-on, and you just keep going. And, and if you say that you believe it, you're in. And Jesus says, no. You deny yourself. And then he raises the stakes even higher. Look at second what he says. He says, you must take up your cross daily. And people have postulated all sorts of existential and metaphorical meaning to this, that taking up your cross daily means dealing with a difficult children or, or working in a difficult job or uh, being in a difficult situation with a, a, a sickness or something like that, right? That you have to, you've heard this, that this is my cross to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about taking up a metaphorical cross. 
like a burden. What, he's simply saying this, is that you have to be willing daily to die for him. Everybody in the ancient Roman world knew what a cross was. People had seen prisoners crucified on the side of the road often, a common sight. What Jesus is saying is, is that you have to be willing every single day to take up your cross and die for him. That's what he's saying. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 13, 12, he says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Jesus won't accept any less allegiance. You have to surrender all of your life to him. And then third, Jesus says, you must follow him. You must follow him. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross daily, and you must follow him. The word is akalutheo. It's the word which really is code for being a disciple. Every rabbi would have disciples, and he would call those disciples to follow him. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want to be a Christian, you can't just be a convert. You can't just like me. You have to follow me. You have to become my disciple. How do I know that? Look at verse 24. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's salvation, right? We're not talking about rewards in the kingdom here. We're talking about saving your soul. And he says, if you want to save your soul, this faith must propel you to surrender to me as my disciple. There is no one that you are going to find in heaven that was not a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't get there by just being a convert. You must be a disciple. You must follow after him. I'm not going to have you turn here, but you know this story. It's such a great illustration of this. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is walking along, and this young man who happens to be very wealthy comes to Jesus. This is Mark 10, 17. And he says to Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question, right? I mean, I mean, as an evangelist, this is, this is what you want to hear every day. I mean, somebody that comes to you and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what does Jesus do with this young man? Does he say, sit down and I want you to say a prayer and just agree with me? and you're in? No, he says, look, I, I need you to understand what true saving faith is. First, Jesus asked him a question. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So he's testing his ethics, what he understands in terms of holiness. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the young man said to him, listen, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. 
Go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. He says, this is the type of faith that is demanded of you. Renounce your old life. Deny it. Repudiate it. Jesus isn't saying that we're communists and we donate all our money to the state or something like that. It's a, it's a test of the heart. He's saying, he's saying what you really worship is your money and your wealth. That's the you that you have to repudiate and deny. So go sell it, give it to the poor, and you come and akolute o me. You follow me. You become my disciple. That's the faith that is necessary to enter the kingdom. And this young man, disheartened by the saying, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He couldn't deny himself. He didn't see Jesus as valuable enough to surrender to him. But that right there is the crux of saving faith. That's the difference. That's the difference between Lord, Lord, and I never knew you, and entering the kingdom of heaven. Saving faith surrenders itself to Christ. Saving faith surrenders itself to Christ. All right, I'm going to do one more, because if we don't, we'll never finish this series. So, fifth, and I'm going to do this really quickly. Saving faith is a living faith. It's not a dead faith. It's a living faith. And if you have been with us through John, we've talked about this a lot in John chapter 5. Jesus says in John 5, 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. He's not talking about just eternal life in the future. He's talking about life now that the Christian life is about entering a new life, that you have this life currently, presently. Paul says in Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says, for the letter kills, the letter of the law kills, the spirit gives life. We have, if it's true saving faith, a living faith. And this is so important and so critical to understand that our faith must be living. It can't be dead. And this is most clear, I think, in the book of James. I want you to turn to James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. And what James does is he contrasts dead faith and living faith. Dead faith and living faith. He says, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Answer, Obviously, it's, it's a rhetorical negative. No. He says, if your faith doesn't produce works, can that faith save? No. Then he, he does a test case of this, verse 15 and 16. 
He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them uh, the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that to, to tell somebody, be warm and be filled and not help them? I remember one time I was preaching in South Carolina. I drove all the way from Kentucky to go preach at this camp, uh, and I preached there for a few days, and it actually happened to be really cold. It snowed. We were up in the mountains of South Carolina, and then when the retreat was over, it was time to leave. They said, thank you so much. We so appreciated it, and they didn't give me anything to pay for my gas to get there or no honorarium, nothing. It was be warm, be filled. And what James is saying is that's empty, and so is faith without works. It's an empty faith. It's a dead faith if you claim to have faith but no works. That's verse 17. Look at verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. Now, I want you to listen very carefully James is not saying that we are justified before God by faith and good works. Do you see that? He's saying that we are justified by faith, but the type of faith that justifies produces good works. Faith is the root of salvation. Good works are the fruit of salvation. It's the test if, if you have true faith, and that's in the roots, it will produce good fruit. If the faith is dead, the fruit will not be there. Do you see that? That's what James is saying. The Reformers always said, we are justified by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew seven sixteen, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased bears bad fruit. This is the litmus test of your faith. Does your faith produce good fruit? That's the question. Or is the fruit not there? James goes on, look at verse 18. He says, the demonstration of your faith is the good works. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith is the demonstration of, or excuse me, good works are the demonstration of our faith. It's not good enough just to say, I have faith. It's not good enough just to say, look, uh, I walked an aisle when I was 16. I have faith. James is saying, okay, good. Show me by your works. Because, look at verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. That's a statement of orthodoxy. That's a restatement of Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. All Jews believe that, that God is one. James says, that's great that you believe that. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's not enough to have sound doctrine. It's not enough to believe intellectually the, the facts of the gospel. You must bear fruit. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. Just, just listen to what he says. We must remind ourselves 
that the Christian faith is ultimately not only a matter of doctrine or understanding or intellect. It is a condition of the heart. Let me hasten to add that the doctrine is absolutely essential. Understanding is vital, but it is not only that. We must ever beware lest we stop at giving only an intellectual assent to the faith or to a given number of propositions. We have to do that, but the terrible danger is that we stop at that. When people have had a merely intellectual interest in these matters, it has oftentimes been a curse to the church. So, the intellectual truth of the gospel, it's important. You have to have it. You have to know it. You have to believe in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But that truth has to be believed in the heart. I used to say all the time, it's the difference of 12 inches, right? You know the 12 inches? From here to here. It it can't just be here. It has to be here. It has to be a faith of the heart. And we could go on to pack the, the rest of these verses and what James is saying. Some have been caught up with these, and, and James is going, to be ta- is going to talk about being justified by faith and works. And, and people look at that and say, see, works do justify. But James uses the word justify in the rest of the verses in a different way than Paul does. He says, he's, he's saying that the works are the, the demonstration, the answer to the test of our faith, that, the, that litmus test that we've been talking about. So, here's the, here's the important thing to ask. Is my faith alive? Does it produce fruit? Remember what Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, so on and so forth. We've seen these beatitudes. It's being poor in spirit. It's being meek. It's mourning over your sin. It's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Is your faith alive or is it dead? If you have that type of faith, you can have every assurance that it's a genuine faith. As you go through those litmus tests, if you say, look, I see the fruit. But here's the thing. If you're sitting here this morning, listen carefully, and you're looking at your life And you say, look, the fruit, I know it's not there. I know before the Lord it's not there. Then for you, today is the day of salvation. Don't walk away from here without repenting and turning from your idols to God. Don't walk away from here without surrendering to Christ. He is Lord and he demands that you surrender to him. He has a kingdom. He's keen, and that is the only way to come into his kingdom. And he demands that your faith must be alive and not dead. So ask the Lord, humble yourself right now. Look, I'm not, ans- I'm not asking you to, to pray a prayer that's gonna automatically save. I'm asking you to believe in your heart to surrender to Christ in your heart. Trust Him. And just like that, 
you will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the reality of the kingdom of Christ, that you are preparing a place for us even now, and one day you will come again and receive us unto yourself, that where you are, we may be also. And we pray, Lord, that we would examine ourselves, whether or not we are truly in the faith, and we would look introspectively at our hearts and see, do we have a repenting faith a surrendering faith, a living faith, a childlike faith, a supernatural faith? Or are we just fooling ourselves and others? Reveal that to us, Lord. And may we trust in you with all of our hearts. In the name of your precious Son, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.